I want you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19 this morning. Um, and as you're turning there, I want to tell you a story about um, the, my first date with my wife. And some of you guys might not want to hear this story. It doesn't matter. I'm telling you anyway. Um, I didn't, I, she would argue that before we, before we actually met that I was low-key stalking her, um, stalking her. And, and, and I argue that point. I, I mean, I really, really liked Burger King's um, lemonade slush. And that just so happened, it just so happened that my wife was a manager at Burger King. And so just because I went there very often trying to buy their Burger King slush didn't mean, didn't mean I was looking for her, right? She would argue that that was, that that was different, that, that actually I was looking for her every time I went. But nevertheless, um, I finally got up the nerve one day going through the Burger King drive through to not ask her yet again if she would go out on a date with me. Um, she instead said, hey, because she could probably see the desperation in my eyes, do you want to grab a bite to eat sometime? I was like, yes, yes, absolutely. I would love to grab a bite to eat sometimes. And, 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 so, we, and so we set out um, to go on a date. It was August the 8th, I believe, 2002. And, 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 and if you think that it's because I just love my wife so much that I would remember a date like that, don't get too excited. It was the uh, release date of Vin Diesel's Triple X movie, action movie. And it's just, for whatever reason, just glued in my head, right? So, so we went out on this date, and we went to see Vin Diesel's Triple X action movie. And, and when, I, when, I, when I picked her up, she came out with just a pair of blue jeans on and a fairly oversized T-shirt. I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Interesting pick of attire for a date with someone as debonair like me. And... And so she got in the car, and I was, I was already stricken by her. I was already captivated by her, her class and her just, she carried, her, she carried herself as she's always done throughout the years with such distinction, and it just Im immediately moved me, moved me and drew, drew me in, right? And then we went to Ryan's to eat, Ryan's Steakhouse, fancy, right? You know, we went to grab a bite to eat at Ryan's Steakhouse, and, and, she didn't mummer a word. She didn't have a look of disdain, like, how dare this man take me to Ryan's or, or anything like that. She was just all good with us grabbing a bite to eat at Ryan's. And, and, and as, as this was happening, a lot of things was going through my head, like, this woman is just so down to earth, and this woman is just so low-key. She doesn't need a lot of pizzazz, and she doesn't need a lot of sparkle, and, man, I think... Man, I think this could be the one. I went home that night so excited. I told my buddy, I was like, man, this woman is awesome. Absolutely awesome. One event, one singular event. And, and sure, there had, sure, there were other dates to kind of confirm this, but, but one single event in time, and I was like, man, I'm, I'm sold. I saw so much character. I saw so many qualities, so many, other, so many characteristics that make candy candy. I saw them though that, that night, and I, was, and I was captivated, and I said, that's, that's it. And it wasn't long later, long later several, months, uh, several months later, that I asked her to marry me, and she said yes, and the rest is history. One event shows so much character about this woman. And as you look at Exodus 19, there is this one event that is revealing and showing so much character about this God. 
This one event is, is giving us a vision and giving us a, giving us a clear vision into the characteristics, into the nature of this God. It's teaching us at least three things that I want to focus on this morning. One is that this God is gracious, the grace of God. It's also teaching us that this God is holy, the holiness of God. And the last thing I want to key in on this morning is that it's teaching us that this God is merciful, the mercy of God. First, the grace of God. This text tells us that uh, a third new moon event has transpired, meaning that it's been roughly seven weeks since Israel was delivered out of Egypt. Moses and his people have arrived at Mount Sinai, and the starting point for, and Mount Sinai was the starting point for this whole deliverance mission. It was here that Moses was called by God, again, as we talked about last week, to return to Israel, I mean, return to Egypt and demand that Pharaoh let Israel go. Moses, is most cert Mo Moses most certainly, rather, at this point, would have been reminded of God's faithfulness in an, in an even deeper way as he recalled when God told him in the beginning that he would be back to this very mountain one day with his people having been delivered to worship at this mountain. And here they are now, delivered from Egypt and serving God on the mountain that God told them in chapter 3 they would serve him on. So God has yet again shown that he is faithful to do exactly what he says that he will do. It is an important fact for all of us to cling to, especially now that we see them moving into the wilderness around Sinai. Remember, God has promised not only to deliver them, but to bring them to a promised land, a place plentiful, flowing with milk and with honey. And yet they don't find themselves in the promised land. They find themselves preparing for a long and extended detour through the wilderness. You see, God has delivered them, but the deliverance doesn't happen in the way we all would expect, nor does it happen in the way that we all would want. The deliverance is going to require trust in God to deepen as they go through the hardship. But see, the same way, saints... He has also delivered him, or he has also shown himself faithful in delivering Israel, but he has also shown himself faithful in delivering you. And he will show himself faithful to get to the promised land if they hold simply fast or simply hold fast to him and trust him, and if we hold fast to him and trust him. This is the story of our salvation. The Lord delivers us, saves us, and then we say, all right, promised land, and then sanctification starts. And if you've been walking with Jesus for a little while, you know that oftentimes sanctification feels a whole lot like the wilderness. It can leave you at times saying, did you save me for this? I, could, I was doing so much better back in Egypt. But just remember the same God who led Israel out of Egypt and led them through the wilderness in due season to reach their inheritance is the same God who saved you through the death of his son Jesus and is leading you through this adventurous but sometimes tumultuous hard journey that we call life in order to bring you to your promised inheritance in his eternal kingdom. You see, for Moses... 
the same God that promised him and his people deliverance from Egypt is now the God promising to lead them through the wilderness to the promised land. All they have to do is trust him and follow the instruction that he gives. And family, that is all you and I have to do. The same God that saved us and brought us out of darkness will complete his work in leading us into glory. All we have to do is trust him. Follow him as he leads us. In fact, by definition, sanctification is what? A process. It takes time. Most of us want to jump from justification to glorification, meaning we want to get saved and then boom, every good thing that we could ever dream of starts happening immediately. But can I share something with you? You're not ready for that. And neither am I. You see, there is a process that we all should go through being conformed more and more into the image and likeness of God. And it is in that hardship that we are prepared for the glory. The journey through hardship is to help shape us and mold us more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. So God has purpose for the wilderness, just like he has purpose for yours. But God is not only fortifying the character of the people here in the wilderness, he is also fortifying their relationship with him through covenant. He begins extending his grace through covenant in Exodus chapter 3, 19, verse 3 through 6. It says this, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God begins the work of outlining his covenant with the people of Israel. The first thing that he mentions is how he delivered them. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Notice who is the actor in God's message concerning deliverance. He is. He says that I took care of the Egyptians and I brought you on the, like the, on the wings of an eagle, meaning that I lifted you up and carried you literally over the trouble. It wasn't your labors. It wasn't your expertise and intellect. It wasn't your righteousness that brought you deliverance. It was me that brought you deliverance. You see, that's what happened first, and that is very, very, very important, and we'll see why in just a moment. But the next thing the Lord does is call Israel into covenant through obedience. According to one Bible dictionary, covenant is a sacred kinship bond or sacred kinship bond between two parties. The Lord lays out the blessing of obedience in verses 5 through 6. He says, you shall be treasure, my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You see, to be a priest was to be one devoted to God. 
and devoted to bringing people to God. God says, follow me and you'll be that. He also says, I'll set you apart and I'll make you a unique nation, standing apart and serving as a model to the world of my love and my grace and my mercy and my invitation to them. You will be my people. Now notice the sequence here, folks. Deliverance, obedience, and blessing. Deliverance, obedience, blessing. God delivers Israel and then gives them law to follow. And by pursuing his will for their lives, they will find the blessing in the obedience. One commentator gets it right or rightly points out that if you get this order wrong, our relationship with God is turned completely on its head. If you put obedience ahead of deliverance, for example, it turns the relationship completely on its head because then it says, I have to obey in order to be accepted. God doesn't come to Israel and says, okay, here's the law. And if you do all of the law and follow it perfectly, then I will come and deliver you out of Egypt. No, he delivers them out of Egypt and then gives them a law. Tim Keller expounds on this idea in this following quote where he compares the person who thinks their deliverance comes through obedience versus the person who obeys because they've been delivered. Beginning a quote, he says, nothing must ever be allowed to upset this order. The gospel is I'm accepted because of the blood of Jesus Christ, therefore I obey. One is operating essentially self-centeredly for it's self-centered to say, if I obey, then God will bless me and he'll answer my prayers and take me to heaven. Why are you obeying God then to get things? Such a person's obedience is always conditional. But if a person who knows you already have everything in Jesus Christ, you've already been saved by grace, why do you obey? You obey not to get things from God, but to get God, to please God, end quote. You see, if, if you read your Bible a good bit and you're saying to yourself right now, all of this sounds a bit familiar, then you would be right. Salvation comes as a work of and work entirely of grace, but then as grace comes in the person and work of Jesus Christ, God calls us to obedience. And walking in that obedience brings blessing to our lives. In fact, Peter uses pretty much the same language to describe our covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, Exodus 19, a holy nation, Exodus 19, a people for his own possession, Exodus 19, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, for those who have embraced Jesus as the Lord and Savior of their lives, they too enter into a covenant. But it's a greater covenant because the blessing that comes through perfect obedience has been satisfied through the Savior who perfectly obeyed on your behalf. Through him, 
we are given, one, to obey perfectly for us, and one to increasingly empower us to obey and to offer us grace when we do not obey. Through him, all of that is gifted to us. And because Christ does that, all those who trust him as Savior and as Lord are too priests, a holy nation, a treasured people. Let me just say emphatically that you need Christ to be this for you. You need Jesus to be this for you. I need him to be this for me, to fulfill the terms of the covenant in in my place, allowing me to walk in the blessing of his perfect obedience. And if you're asking why, then look at verse 7 with me. Verse 7, 19, it says, So Moses called the elders of the people, And set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Now this is very sweet and very nice of Israel to say such things. (laughs) But they in no way going to do this. (laughs) It's not happening. In fact, in fact... Not too far from this very moment, Moses is going to go up to the mountain and begin to receive the law of God. And as Moses is receiving the law of God, and one one part of the law is going to say something like, thou shalt make no graven images and thou shalt have no idols before me. As he is receiving that law, they're going to be down there at the bottom of the mountain saying, man, it's been so long since we've seen Moses. I don't know if he's coming back. Aaron, can you make us some idols? <laughs> so, so Israel saying, yes, Lord, whatever you say, we will do. We know that that's not actually happening. And this happens, by the way, over and over and over in the life of Israel. So here's what we learn from Israel. We will never receive the fullness of the blessing of this covenant because we will never fully obey this covenant unless we have someone who comes and lives this life of obedience in our place. This is what Jesus did for you. This is what Jesus did for me, and this is why we need him. Nevertheless, the people say, yes, yes, Moses, we will obey, we will listen, we will do everything that that God asks. And so with that agreement from the people, the covenant is, is established. God begins to prepare Moses and the people for his arrival. And this is where we see the next attribute of God on display, and that is his holiness. Everyone agrees on the terms of the covenant. God says to Moses, okay, I will come and visit you and come and speak with you and lay out the terms of our agreement. The Ten Commandments, the law, these are the ratifying documents for this nation. One scholar calls calls it Israel's national constitution, so to speak. But in order to come and visit the people, God tells Moses that he needs to prepare them. And this is what verses 9 through 15 tell us or show us. It says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the the people to the Lord, 
The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments, and he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. And so let's recap. He says, wash your clothes. He says, set barriers around the mountain so that no one can touch it, because if they do, they will be stoned or shot. He says, do not engage in sexual relations. Here we are seeing that this is a holy God and we cannot enter to see this God in any kind of posture that we choose. Remember when the Lord spoke from the burning bush, even Moses was asked to take off his shoes for where you are standing is holy ground. And so the people prepare themselves. And then in verse 16, God arrives. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. This was a spectacular sight. This was a spectacular vision on this mountain as the Lord begins the work of giving his people this covenant. It was an audio-visual special effects spectacle that even Marvel movies couldn't top. The scene had everything, right? The scene had thunder booming in the dark sky, lightning cracking across the sky, back and forth, a loud trumpet repeatedly blasting that keeps getting louder and louder and louder, smoke covering the mountain as the Lord comes down in fire. How do you think the people responded to this? The same way you and I would respond. They trembled. They were shook. And they should have been. What does it mean to tremble? It means to be so overwhelmed by a sight. So overwhelmed by a sound, so overwhelmed with emotion that you begin to shake involuntarily. Israel was overwhelmed. Israel was overwhelmed by God. 
The spectacle was too much for them to, to them, for them to intake. But they were also overwhelmed, not just by God, but by their smallness in front of this God. As God approached them, they began to realize how holy he was and how unqualified they were to stand in the presence of this holy God. This happens in scripture a number of times, by the way. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, sees God in a vision in all of his glory Isaiah sees him in this magnificent temple filled, filled with smoke and, and angelic otherworldly beings called seraphims whose presence alone would cause one to shudder. And they're actually just there to accompany this great God and to speak about this great God saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All the earth is full of his glory. And it is at this moment that we hear these words from Isaiah in chapter 6. Woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips dwelling among a, pe dwelling among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We would have considered Isaiah to be an extremely righteous man if he was standing and sitting amongst us on this morning. And yet Isaiah, in the presence of this holy God, says, woe is me. I am unclean. We see it again with Job. For those of you who don't know the story of Job, it, Job was an upstanding righteous man with a lot of family, a lot of wealth, a lot of health, a lot of property who God allowed to be tested by the devil. The devil released an onslaught of horrible trials, and, 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 and those trials struck at his family and his wealth and his property and his health. And throughout the entire book, understandably, if you were going through the same thing Job went through, you would have similar statements but throughout the entire book, Job voices his frustrations with what is happening in his life. And he challenges God on whether it would have been better for him to never have been born than to be born and go through all the things that he is going through. And the Lord is pretty much silent throughout the book, giving little answer to Job's frustration until the very end. In chapter 38, Job the Lord answers Job. And the Bible says the Lord answers him out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. That's what God tells Job. God shows up in a mighty hurricane and he begins to speak and he walks Job through his nature and through his glory and through his might and through his holiness, basically asking Job, can you do better? And Job sees God's holiness on that day. And how does Job respond? He responds twice to God during this conversation. The first time Job says, in chapter 40, verse 4, behold, I am a I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. 
I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. In other words, Job says, now that I have seen you, now that you have shown yourself to me, I realize just how small I am and how much less I need to talk. He says one more thing to God in chapter 42. He says, I know Verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Now that, now that I see you, Job is saying, now that I realize how mighty you are and how insignificant I am and how wise you are and how ignorant I am, I'll close my mouth. And though I was a pretty upstanding citizen and, and, a, and a, a pretty righteous man when comparing myself to other people, now that I have seen you and now that I realize how holy you are, I clearly see that I am not nearly as upstanding as I thought I was, nor am I as righteous as I thought I was. You see, the closer that God gets to us, the more clearly we recognize how unqualified we are to be near him. As God is coming down from the heavens to the mountain and getting closer and closer and closer to Israel, Israel is terrified at the sight. Again, I want to point to Keller who rightly points out that this is one of the reasons that so many of the pictures and the images of God as described in the Bible are terrifying pictures and images. We hear God coming in the form of thunder and lightning, God coming in the form of hurricane and whirlwinds, God coming in the form of fire and smoke, God coming in the form of a man of war, God wrestling with Jacob. We hear so many of these descriptions that Show and display God as this terrible and terrifying sight. Why? One, because God is holy, but also because we are so insignificant. And it strikes horror in us when we see this significant and worthy God compared to our insignificance and unworthiness. This is why Israel trembled. But it is also the same reason why we should tremble. One of the lost understandings of modern-day generation, even those of us who call ourselves Christians, is just how holy he is and just how sinful we are. Every single day, not just, not just in your actions, but in your thoughts, in your motivations, even the good things that you do with selfish motives in the background. The kind acts that we perform in order that we may receive glory in order that he, in, 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 instead of him receiving glory. We are through and through utterly and thoroughly sinful. And so when we stand before this holy God, it should bring horror. It should bring terror. 
The Bible says, but now, in Romans chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In the scriptures, when Peter first meets Jesus, Jesus gets on, Jesus joins the, joins the disciples as they are fishing. Jesus tells them to cast their nets because they're preparing to wrap up and go home. They said, man, we've been out here all day, man. Ain't no fish out here. Jesus says, put your, put your net back in. They drop the net in. Now, as they begin to tug it back, there's so many fish in the net that they can't tug it back. And Peter immediately says to Jesus, man, I'm so glad you came. Woo, man, I could, man, I got so much fish now, I could eat for two months. No. Peter immediately says to Jesus, depart from me. Depart from me. Listen. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. As he stands in the presence of holiness and sheer, raw, unadulterated power, he says to himself, I have no business being here. Or you have no business being here with me. One of us has to leave. And this is what's happening on this mountain. As the sheer might of God is on full display for the world to see, the Israelites are horrified. And so in verse 21, God says to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to the mount. For you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. The people in this moment see the mercy of God. You see, they can't go up to God. They'll die if they go up to God in this moment. And so God sends someone down to them to speak with them, to talk with them, to instruct them, to show them his ways. The people can't come up or they will die. So Moses, you must go down. And Moses goes down and he serves as the mediator between God and the people to keep the people from perishing. You see, God is exceedingly holy, but God is exceedingly merciful. And so he sends his servant down to the people where they could not come up. It sounds like another, doesn't it? This sounds like another that he sent down. Because there was no way that we were going to be able to go up to see him. In fact, did you know that there is another New Testament moment when God and Moses are having a conversation? 
There's a moment in the New Testament where God and Moses are having a conversation too. Mark chapter 9, verse 2 through 10, God and Moses are seen. But who else is there? Well, Elijah is there. So God, Moses, Elijah are present in, the, in this moment. And Peter, James, John, the disciples are present in this moment. But who are they all there to bear witness to? Jesus. Jesus. In this moment, the transfiguration as they call it. Light, radiant, and so bright that you can barely look upon him. Glistening white. Pure, perfect, holy. Remember the thunder? Remember the lightning? Now you see it. The supernatural spectacle, but now it is in the sun. And the disciples are terrified. Just like the Israelites are terrified. The disciples are so terrified that they blurt out, well, Peter blurts out because that's what Peter does. And so they blurt out this statement. It's like, hey, we need to make some tents for Moses and Elijah. Um, Jesus, what do you think? It's like, nah, this ain't, that, this ain't the time for that, Peter. But they're able to be there, right? Not killed. Why? Why are they able to join Moses now and Elijah now? Why is Peter, John, and, 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 and James and all of their horror able to join them? Because of who they were with. They were with Jesus. Jesus permits us entry into the holiness of God. Jesus permits the indwelling of God in us without destroying us. Because Jesus fulfills the covenant. Jesus' perfect obedience fulfills the covenant on your behalf. No, you are not holy enough in your own power. But you are holy because of who you stand behind. You are holy because of the one who went before you. And this time when God speaks from the mountain, he actually doesn't speak about the law. This time when God speaks from the mountain, he is declaring the gospel. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do what he says. Do you get that? Why? Because everything has culminated in Jesus. And he gives us entry into the presence of God. Saints. God will glorify you one day. You will be in his presence. You will be able to stand and see him face to face. You will be in the presence of a God who will light the sky like the sun. But why will you be there? You'll be there because Jesus Christ went before you, lived the life of perfection that you could never live, died the death that you all deserved, that I deserved to die, and rose from the grave with all power in his hand, that in order that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life in the presence of of this holy God. That is the mercy of God 
that has been extended to you. Cling to that mercy. Embrace the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as your Savior if you have yet to do so. Turn from your ways. Turn from your sin. Turn to him. Do what he says. And have entry into the presence of God. Amen. Would you pray? God, we love you.